0: Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors, Metagenics, Integrative Therapeutics, and Biotics Research. The mission of Metagenics is to lead the movement in making personalized nutritional intervention the standard of care in the treatment and prevention of disease and the promotion of optimal health. For over 30 years, Metagenics has been dedicated to scientific discovery, innovative products, unparalleled quality, education, and practitioner partnerships to support lifestyle functional nutrition. For more information, visit Metagenics at metagenics.com. Biotics Research. For over 40 years, the foundations of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at BioticsResearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health. By providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources, Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. Hi everybody! Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine, and today is no exception. I am thrilled to be here with Dr. Lynn Patrick. Uh, let me give you some background on her. I know you're already well aware of her really kind of illustrious career in our in our world. Um, I know she's been a teacher of mine and inspiration to me for uh, many years, and um, you know, you'll, you'll you'll be sure to glean a lot of good information from Lynn today. She graduated from Bastyr University in 1984 with a doctorate in naturopathic medicine. She's been in private practice for 30 years. She's got lots of peer-reviewed uh, journal articles, and some of those are open access. Um, and, you know, Lynn, if we can get some links to be able to download some of your articles they 're sure. they're useful I mean your content you write for the clinician, your content is you know kind of monday mo- monday morning friendly things that we use in practice a lot. I know I have used your writings in my you know in, in, in putting together my treatment plans and so forth so yeah, just make a note of that and we'll 'll we'll get them from you. Um, you are a contributing editor for alternative medicine review. Um, What else? You've just authored a chapter in clinical environmental medicine, and that's Elsevier. Um, Let me see. And you speak internationally. You speak all over the place. I, on liver disease, endocrine disruption, um, metal toxicology, I think those are your big areas.
1: That's right.
0: Um, Right? I, you did, incidentally, you did a great, you knocked it out of the park on hepatitis at IFM some years ago. Um, that was a PowerPoint that I continued to ref, uh, refer to, and and nothing like diverging from reading a bio. But I want to, let me just say that I interviewed Bob Browntree on New Frontiers maybe two three months ago, and he That's was talking about yeah, yeah, and he he was talking about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and he got a lot of his content from you, and he you know, he sung your praises, which he's done before. So if folks, we're not gonna be talking about liver disease today. Uh, So if you're interested in that, if you're interested in uh, 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 Dr. Patrick's work there, you can certainly go to Dr. Roundtree's New Frontiers podcast with me, and his slide deck uh, is downloadable. You can access that. And then Dr. Patrick will give us some links to some of her um, publications on hepatitis. I, I, I mean, I know you published an alt-med review on Hep C specifically, that's 1999. If, and I think that that's useful, but if you've got any, any, any more current content we can access, that would be great.
1: Things have changed so dramatically just Since, in the last five years, yeah. Okay,
0: so whatever you've got in that arena for new writing, give, okay. us, give us links to. Um, Let me see, you're on faculty for the Metabolic Medicine Institute Fellowship in collaboration with George Washington School of Medicine um, and Health Sciences. You're on the board of directors for ACAM. Uh, You are a founding partner and presenter at Environmental Health Symposium. Um, And then in addition to this, occasionally it looks like you say you get out and ride your bike and hike. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Good, good for you. Oh, yeah. You got a lot going on.
1: I love the whole idea of um, having, you know, relativity, health and relativity and understanding what's important in life and being in nature. That's well, big
0: you know, you, I, you, you, it's essential when you're talking about toxicology. I mean, yeah. because otherwise <laughs> it's, cause it's, a, it's a, it's a very morose and kind of heavy area
1: it is it's well i think the the problem is that um that Sometimes we get stuck in the problems and we don't always gravitate and live in the solutions. Yes. And I found that um, I'm much more able to handle the problem and the reality and the overwhelm when I swim around in the solutions Perfect. most of the day. Yeah, Perfect.
0: yeah that's, that's great. So we're, we're going to be very, we're going to swim in the solution today. We went through that. Actually, we went through that in IFM and had to kind of reframe, and make sure we were swimming in the solution. And then at the laboratory, when I was at Metametrics, and we were, you know, doing research on the, um, on on the various panels that we were releasing, the organotoxins panels. When you're in the literature, you can get depressed quickly. So
1: mm-hmm.
0: swimming in the solution is essential. Um, and you guys were, have been doing some work lately on the the wildfires and smoke exposure, and you were just talking to me um off air about flooding that's happening now correct
1: in northern california yeah so when the when the air quality situation happened in san francisco this summer um, the board of directors of the uh, naturopathic association of environmental medicine which uh, i just stepped down from the presidency of that last night i'm happy to report because i was president i think for like a decade or something wow yeah we have a new president. So anyway, the board of directors got together. One of them lived near Santa Rosa and has been very involved. There's a tremendous amount of research going on right now looking at the exposure from the Santa Rosa fires. But I think it was a really important wake-up call for all of us, especially uh, the docks in Southern California and in the San Francisco Bay Area, to really start understanding what's in our air and specifically what happens as a result of air exposures to wildfire smoke. So we did a two-part webinar on that. I'm Dr. Louise Tolsman, who is a wonderful environmental medicine and and oncology, naturopathic oncology doc in Portland, who has worked with several uh, fire fire companies of firefighters, actually Mm. worked with them, Mm -hmm. uh, did part of that. And we actually really went through Toxicant by toxicant, what do we know about the exposures and what can we do about it? And there's some wonderful research looking at extremely simple, very elegant solutions. For example, methylation, Mm. just improving methylation actually has a very uh, profound effect on the the exposure that we have from wildfire smoke in terms of how it damages us. So that's all, right. all available. Free webinar. You can either go to Environmental Health Symposium 2019, go to the blog. The webinar's there for free, both of them. And then the NAEM website, um, naturopathicenvironment.org. Uh, all right.
0: We'll get... We'll get the links. We'll get the links and put them on the show notes. Folks, just go to Dr. Patrick's page on our show notes. We'll have links to those resources. Thank you. That's a really valuable service. All right, so you threw out one teaser (laughs) on this methylation thing in a sentence, Lynn, because we've got so much else to talk about. What are the methylation interventions
1: that they saw? Well, so what we know, and this was done actually in humans, and we talk about, let's see, I think this was part two of the webinar mm-hmm. um, was the simple interventions that we, uh, some of us take for granted
0: like with B uh,
1: methyl B12 mm-hmm. and methyl folate. You okay. know, it's something sure. that simple yeah. actually has a profound protective effect and we never really directly link them. Right. We think of them as separate, you know, methylation assists with uh, hormone metabolism and, um, improvement in glutathione production and recycling of homocysteine and improvement in SAME production and things like that. And you know, and all the spin-offs that we know. Um, but we don't really think about the actual effects of toxicants on our epigenetics and how methyl okay. is protective. So
0: yes, absolutely.
1: It's very protective and it's absolutely necessary. And it's absolutely necessary for everyone who I'm gonna you know, go out on a limb here and say a breathes urban air in the United States of America. Right. So I think we have to take that more seriously.
0: I would love to see. Um,
1: I'll send you shoot. that article. I'll actually post right. it. It's, a, it's um, yeah. open access.
0: Okay. Yeah. Shoot it over and we'll put it on our show notes as well. Incidentally, I'm, I am doing a epigenetic research study at HealthGOT and at UNM. Specifically, we're looking at 900,000 data points of DNA methylation CpG sites on mm-hmm. bas- baseline and then lifestyle intervention. So I'm really interested in that area.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm All gonna right. get this article.
0: Yes. Yeah, <laughs> okay, so let's just go on um into some of these questions. You you know, you mentioned now we'll we'll do a deeper dive into talking about um, heavy metal toxicity and I'd love to be able to talk about persistent organic pollutants. Um, time permitting, but you know, you mentioned to me earlier that there are five conditions in your mind that are just really unequivocally related to toxicant exposures. Can you, what are those?
1: Well, sure. Let's go through it. All right. Mm -hmm. So, um, I'm going to talk about them from their importance as uh, epidemics. All right. Mm -hmm. So we know there's an epidemic of obesity, you know, 40% of our adult population. And it and as a corollary, I'm not gonna say obesity causes anything. I think obesity is more a symptom than it is a cause, actually. But we know that there's a corollary uh, for obesity of type two diabetes. And type 2 diabetes, it is becoming clearer and clearer and clearer. There's overwhelming evidence that yeah. type 2 diabetes is not simply a disease of overconsumption and underuse, under exercise. It is a disease of exposure. And, uh, you know, Dokie Lee, I'm sure you're familiar yes, with, yes, that, yes. Yep. with her research showing yep. that. Uh, obese individuals who had low body burdens of persistent organic pollutants were no more at risk for type 2 diabetes than normal weight adults. But it was the, the highest risk, of course, is being obese and having a high body burden of these persistent pollutants. So so far, I've actually talked about three conditions, you know, cardiovascular disease, obesity, and type 2 diabetes. But the, the kind of perfect storm that makes is um, metabolic syndrome. You know cardiometabolic syndrome yeah. and that's also we know that 50 percent of our population now yep. this was american journal of clinical nutrition in 2018 is insulin resistant yeah enough. flip a coin
0: well you know what though if you if you tighten those parameters like a study that was really interesting to me was the san antonio heart study um yes right and they showed insulin levels well within normal limits as being associated with cardiovascular disease. And I think it was five, you know, the cutoff was five.
1: Yep, exactly.
0: And, and, and so you could tighten up, you could look at functional ranges of cardiometabolic disease and zoom that way down to, you know, most of us.
1: <laughs> you know? Right, and if you, yes, I agree. And I think this is where we get into the uncomfortable uh, conversation that I'm used to having every day with clinicians of, you know, what are you gonna do in your patients who are on keto, who are keto adapted, who mm. are on a Mediterranean diet that's brain free and they still yeah. look very cardiometabolic. Yeah. That's where we get into this discussion of what yes. are the toxicants that you need to look for. So so what we have
0: that's awesome. So super yeah. clean eaters, they're on the diet that we would have prescribed and still they're, and they're they marching even, on the catab- cardiometabolic continuum. Right. Okay. And they might then even what? be
1: skinny fat people. Skinny you know, yep. skin, skin, yep. We know about the skinny fat people, those wonderful people whose BMIs are 24 and 25. But because of these exposures that we're yes. going to talk about, their stem cells, and I'm serious about this when I say this, their stem cells instead of making bone cells and muscle cells are making adipocytes. Yep. Right? And so they're going to have fatty bone, fatty muscle and fatty liver and that's number 5 is fatty liver. So, you know, I could add all kinds of other diseases into this this huge uh, sure. Venn diagram like yes. infertility and yes. dementia and ADHD. Yes. But I think if we just stick to the cardiometabolic related conditions, it'll be a better example of how toxicants affect the very nature of our um, metabolism. You know, they're not even called, now we we have renamed endocrine disrupting chemicals, metabolism disrupting chemicals, Mm. because we figured out that they don't just disrupt hormones. They actually disrupt, drop nuclear receptor sites in the nucleus of the cell where oh let's say t3 in order for it to work has to dock not only on the cell site the cell receptor site but has to move yes. into the nucleus right. and actually interact with the nuclear receptors and that's where these these chemicals that we don't want to think about but we have to start thinking about like pcbs
0: yeah 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 well listen let me just say this this is so fascinating you've said a, a ton i always I look at thyroid function as a bit of the canary in the coal mine, kind of like breast tissue is, you know, the thyroid mm-hmm. gland. And that would be a really clear piece there, the, the interruption of T3 actually docking.
1: Exactly. The, because, okay. and, and we don't like to talk about this because it's so not neat. You know what I mean? It doesn't fit into our very well-ordered, algorithms of how we do thyroid and believe me, you know, I went through a year of not being able to really reconcile my understanding of environmental medicine with what I did clinically because I just didn't know how those two work together. But in our patients who don't respond to T3, exogenous t3 or exogenous t3 and t4 we can't just keep upping the dose because we know what happens (laughs) when when you give a patient too much t3 or too much t4 and we have to start looking at what you know at at the fact that at some point we have to rethink our intervention because truly when we look at things like um Oh, I'm going to pick on a couple of toxicants, PCBs. Mm -hmm. We know that they interact with the nuclear uh, receptor and we know that PCBs, phthalates, Mm -hmm. BPA, there's good clinical research that shows that the higher for BPA and, um, and uh, plastics phthalates uh, that the higher the levels in urine, the lower the levels of total t4 total t3 and of course the higher the level of tsh and that's a direct correlation so we can see that in large population studies we know that and the, you know they these large population studies have corrected for all the confounders you know including mm-hmm. lack of exercise including
0: yeah, i got including it
1: high- it. so there is a direct correlation there and so we need to be able to start thinking in our in our thyroid armamentarium what else can i do to help my thyroid patients so that this metabolic problem that's happening at the level of the nuclear receptor yeah. is reversed and thankfully researchers are starting to do clinical studies and publish we've had them speak at EHS on how to lower levels Of these toxicants in people just by doing simple avoidance. Well, it's not simple, but avoidance. I'm going to call it avoidance. Yeah,
0: okay. So, So what? Eating organic? I mean, what, you know, talk to you about.
1: I'll I'll talk to you about Dr. Todd Hagobian at Cal Poly Tech and his research in women looking at BPA and some metabolic indicators. So he's starting to measure serum insulins, et cetera. What he's found is that at least looking at urinary BPA, measure measured in urine, right? Yep. Um, the Genova panel, I think is the only one that looks at BPA um, in urine. And in Europe, they look at blood, but I think urine's actually better, honestly. Um, One of the things that Hagobian has found, and Dr. Vamsal, who's also going to be speaking at EHS here next month, has found that cash register receipt contact is actually a significant exposure for men and women, but more for women because we use all kinds of personal care products that break down our skin barrier and allow the BPA to be absorbed more efficiently. So he found in his research, Dr. Hagobian, that if he gave his female... Um, patients in this study, uh, their own personal care products that were BPA free and glass containers and asked them not to eat canned food. And number four is very important that they not have contact with thermal receipts, which are receipts, you know, and that would include airline tickets. Yeah. But he was able to, um, and this was only, I think, six weeks study, uh, he was able to significantly decrease their urine BPA levels. That's and that's that's important not because BPA is a high-volume production toxicant. We produce more BPA in this country than any other endocrine disruptor uh, or high-volume production toxicant.
0: Yeah, it's huge. Let me ask you two okay. questions. I, I'm so sorry, folks. You're like, Kara... Stop interrupting her, because what you're saying is so important. <laughs> but we've got a lot to add on this. So, yeah. I'm, 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 so A, uh, did he show improvement in thyroid function after removing BPA? And that B, study
1: has not been done.
0: Okay, so that's what we need to be looking that's at. That's the and next
1: study. Somebody has to do that study, researchers out there.
0: Yep, and that's clinicians gathering data in your office we're going to adopt the promise 10 here as part of our evaluation. So we can actually have a validated, you know, questionnaire that we're, so we could technically, you know, publish with some, anyway, folks, Mm -hmm. you could actually, you could do that. And I will also get this paper from Dr. Patrick and make sure that it's on the show notes. Um, And so then my second question, you know, thinking about my, my, my daughter, I've got a um, one-year-old at home and you know, she's the BPA free toys are ubiquitous, they're everywhere. Mm-hmm. Then there's all these BPA metabolites that they're loaded with. I mean, can you just make a couple comments on those? Sure. So,
1: bisphenols as a class, there are literally, I think, now about 120 of them that have been chemically produced. They're synthetic, they don't occur naturally. And so they're, uh, they're not exactly congeners, but they're different forms of bisphenol. So um, we have BPA, BPF, BPS, and then there's a new one Dr. Vamsal is gonna talk about that's like a BPS BPFSX972 or something that they're gonna use in thermal receipt paper. These are called by people in the environmental research field, regrettable substitutions. Why? Because they were thrown into commerce with absolutely zero testing about their ability to be endocrine disruptors. So anything that's labeled BPA free can be legally BPS or BPF. BPS appears to have more estrogen disrupting activity than BPA does. And BPS is the most commonly used regrettable substitution so
0: okay and so basically if you're seeing a BPA free plastic you're like get rid of this throw this far and wide correct right?
1: correct um, so these are all polycarbonate plastics those are the plastics that yeah. need BPA added right. to them so the idea here is and I know this is hard especially if you are a parent and you live in the world. they everywhere. Plastic.
0: It's insane. You know, I'm a new
1: parent. To, to substitute other substances for polycarbonate plastic. So all the toys that are made out of BPA, BPS, and BPF. You know that that say BPA free may have. They don't all. You know, Eden canned food is the one shining example of an actual bisphenol free can. Um, but it's the only one that I yeah EDEN you know that company they went back to what you know we used to use before we used bisphenols plant resins plant Uh, resins right because you have to cover up the seal on the metal to prevent the acid in the food from eating away at the metal that only happens at the seal so um, any metal uh, water containers that are aluminum may actually be lined with bisphenol you know there are there are very, uh, again, shining examples of bisphenol-free water containers. I don't know if I can say commercial names. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, you sure can. Yep. Clean
1: Canteen
0: Yep. yep. the one
1: that we know for sure okay. is bisphenol-free. So anyway, it's, it is difficult, and many moms I've seen are starting to blog now about um, how to live with alternatives. Cars.
0: Yeah. I mean, you just got to go old school, you know, wood, stainless steel, <laughs> Glass you know, silicon, yeah. That's right. That's right. But man, it's a plastic world when you're in a kid's world, although it's paradoxical. And then I'm going to shut up on one hand, there's extra effort to make certain things clean and they're easier access if you go into the baby aisle. And then on the, but then the other hand, there's all these, um, you know, BP, all BPAs now. All right. So listen, I, I wanted to just say a couple things and then we'll talk about metals. But, um, so you, you know, you're hanging your hat on, if, if somebody with any, if somebody's walking along the continuum of cardiometabolic disease, which are, I I would say, when we look at functional ranges, really, unless we're very intentionally living our lives not to be on that path, we're on that path. You know, it's a strong river that the Western lifestyle just pushes you along.
1: That's correct.
0: Um, and, 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 but, and then you, and, but then you, you know, you jumped into stop talking about thyroid. And I mean, really the underpinning for all of these imbalances, one of the very obvious, easy to look at one, is, is, is inflammation. And so these persistent organic pollution, pollutants are turning the volume up on inflammation. And so we're going to see, you know, just where any chronic disease, Lynn, I'm imagining is going to have as, 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 a, as, a, as a core component, in your opinion toxicant exposure driving it would you say that that's true
1: i f- i have to qualify that um, okay. because okay. the world that i live in it, toxicants are not in one big barrel you know we have to separate the toxicants that cause inflammation from the toxicants that are endocrine disruptors because not all endocrine disruptors increase for example if we want to look at some of the inflammatory cytokines or something as simple as HSCRP, not all toxicants will do that. So we can't equate them, but for the most part, and I'm going to include uh, certain endocrine disruptors like PCBs, which are also liver toxicants.
0: Yes.
1: And they increase liver steatosis, right? Yes. So in that mm, kind of Venn diagram where metals and PCBs come together, yes, absolutely. Not only will you see increased cytokines, but you'll see increased uh, levels of ALT and GGT in those patients that are overloaded. So I think in general, if you want to use the most generic uh, definition of inflammation, yes, for the most part, we're talking about a pro-inflammatory cytokine storm. As a result, and so then we can pull autoimmune disease in as well. As you know, that that's yes. a really important pathway for autoimmune disease, which we know. You know that um, according to the most conventional, the most conventional endocrinologists, autoimmune diseases are thirty three percent genetics and sixty six percent environmental. Environment,
0: experience. yeah, and that research has been around a long time. I mean, mm-hmm. I remember, you know, at the Institute for Functional Medicine, you know, a decade plus ago, you know, just speaking about um, lupus and, you know, 1999 there was a study looking at smoking and um, GST mutations and so forth. And yeah.
1: Yeah. So the Vojtani, you know, Aristo Vojtani has really done some seminal research in this area and he's looked at the fact that we actually make antibodies to BPA for example. Right. Yeah,
0: that's right. Yeah, that's
1: right. We make antibodies to solvents as well. Probably one of the most best well-researched and documented, um, models of autoimmune disease is TCE, which is a common waterborne and now soil borne solvent from industry. You know, in these, um, south bay area the san francisco bay area uh, the tri-cities area there there's a huge superfund site where uh, uh, housing uh, was built on top of some industrial sites and the epa has for the last several years been going into homes to check the soil borne vaporization levels meaning this stuff is coming up as a plant yeah. through the soil and vaporizing inside the house through the foundation of the house and actually having to evacuate people as a result of your TCE. But my, my that was a segue. I mean, a, that was a tangent, sorry. But my, <laughs> point, my point was that we have very clear evidence that these toxicants cause autoimmune disease. And, and in that situation, specifically inflammation and antibody formation to the toxicant, um, causes the damage and can initiate the autoimmunity so yeah i think there's very specific toxicants that through that model of immune um, dysfunction will lead to a disease state so yeah Um, go ahead
0: Hey everybody, thanks for listening. If you're enjoying this content, you might want to know about our Functional Medicine Clinic Immersion Programs, available to all qualified practitioners who want to advance their applied clinical skills and build confidence in helping even their toughest cases. Delivered fully online, our program provides live mentorship option, access to our clinic's discussions of real patient cases, teach-ins with expert colleagues, and the opportunity to become part of an engaged and nurturing community of peers. Most importantly, you'll get the support you need to bridge the gap between functional medicine theory and practice. Spaces for a one-year mentorship option are limited, so early application is advised. Please visit drkarafitzgerald.com, choose the professionals tab, and select professional education programs to find out more about the options available and to apply. And now back to new frontiers in functional medicine well a big pearl for me i just want to underscore again is this idea that people come to us on clean diets who are really working at living cleanly and are still stuck like exactly and and so that's a that's that's a big that's a huge flag and something that we will kind of underscore the other thing as i have two other comments here is you know again being at metametrics lab when we were working on adopting the cdc panels in fact um Walter Krinian was working with us on yes. that. And I think we did a good job on figuring those things out. And then we, of course, we had PCBs. We were looking at a whole handful of persistent organic pollutants. You know, we, we you know, we were trying to look at the bad guys and these guys, you know, as we were in the literature around it, the half-life of these the reason they're called persistent organic pollutants is because they stick around. I mean, they don't go anywhere. Like I think there's they're four. They're these in my mind. They're these man-made chemicals that our liver, you know, just looks at and doesn't know what the hell to do with. And so we end up sequestering mm-hmm. them. Like we have a pretty we have an exquisitely sophisticated detoxification system to right. move out metal things that we evolved with. I mean, metal. We've been exposed to toxic metals since we were you know primordial ooze. But,
1: but Dinosaurs. Yeah, they, but no, have, seriously, Mercury tr- from the volcanoes. True.
0: Yeah, oh. they, yeah it's, it's part of the Earth's crust, but PCBs are not, you know, and so we're, these are right. these foreign entities that we have to sequester. I mean, that was my kind of big aha, of course the half-life is, you know, decade plus. Right. Um, and so then we, but, but here's the thing, and there's no literature on successfully lowering them. But here well, we are yes, in the lab.
1: But, but there is. Okay. Go ahead.
0: So that's the thi- well. One of the thing. So, and I think that it's newer literature. So, my time in the lab, when we were looking for it, there wasn't any, and this was a big, a big huge ish um, omission. But we were seeing anecdotally as we were practicing on ourselves and doing interventions that we could actually lower them. So these were like n of one and two and three cases mm-hmm. where we would follow, a uh, relatively standard integrative detox protocols, and actually see that we could budge these numbers. Oh, you know, that's. Most-
1: such important. Isn't that cool? Those N of ones are so important. So important. You guys can publish that data, but boy, do we need that.
0: Well, one of the big ones was Andy Brawley. I mean, I've presented on him a long time ago. He owned Metametrics and then sold it to Nova. Well, Andy was eating, you know, he developed a a pesky little habit of having a um, farm-raised salmon bagel on Every day for oh, not long. Yeah, right. Well, and it's handy. He happens to own this lab that's looking at PCBs now. So we could see that his were shot through the roof. So obviously the first thing was, okay, stop the salmon bagel. Okay, now let's let's detox you. I think he chose a standard process detox protocol. But mm-hmm. it was it's not different than, you know, metagenics or designs for like any of the quality companies we're we're working with. And you know, we saw them drop. We was saw it a 153
1: drop. and 180? The drop. It
0: was, well, it was definitely 153. I'd have to actually pull up my PowerPoints and right. And, the other and just
1: for the right. audience, that's probably an important clinical point. That 153 yes. is the PCB congener that is found most often in those who eat farm salmon.
0: Well, and the half-life on what he had, you know, those half. The, the half-life is very long. I mean, it's no yeah. joke. We don't expect to move it. So it was heartening for me to see this anecdotally that we were successfully yeah. doing something about it. But I also, but I want to, I want to hear the, uh, the literature showing.
1: Yeah. Um, so co- coincidentally, it. I think this is so important that I'm going to be presenting at EHS on this very subject, is how do we deal with, and I'm specifically going to be talking about endocrine disrupting and metabolism disrupting chemicals. So imagine that, and I think this was back in the 50s and 60s, scientists found a way to synthetically combine halogens, right, bromine, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. chlorine, and chlorine, with uh, long chain carbon molecules and they invented persistent organic pollutants basically by doing that. So PCBs, or get well they, in the 40s and the 30s actually for organ- organic chlorine pesticides, um, flame retardants are brominated and nonstick yeah. compounds are fluorinated and those fluorinated chemicals, do you know that they don't even know the extent of the half-lives on PFOS and PFAS? they literally they literally don't understand how they 're ever broken down, and Dr. Stephen Genoas, you know th- these mm-hmm. are the new yeah. toxicants we have to start paying attention to
0: right.
1: tried to eliminate them in in uh, in cohorts that he was studying, uh, and the only way he could get them out to lower the levels really was phlebotomy and cholestyramine so wow, we, okay, we, and he tried huh. everything else, including. Huh. Sona. And, that's and probably has he published the, on that? Yes. So Dr. Genoas um, has in published Canada. a series of three articles on dealing with perfluorinated uh, toxicants. All right. You know, he, he started this because he had a family who was very sick. And the only thing he could surmise was it was something in the home. And it turns out that they had had their, their entire home was carpeted except for the kitchen. And they had somebody come in once a month i think no it was once every three months excuse me not once a month and completely scotch guard the entire home you know they would clean the carpets right and yeah, then yeah. re-scotch guard so they're they're extremely high levels of perfluorinated chemicals and he actually put the whole family the mom the dad and a couple of teenagers on a phlebotomy protocol where he had them go donate blood every three months and then for Isn't years, that
0: fascinating well you know what years, that's yeah, go ahead. In four years? It makes
1: sense. Right? It's not, well, it makes and it's sense. not
0: rocket science. It's actually pretty yeah. easy to go donate blood. You so know, that's, that's what it.
1: we need to do right now is we absolutely need to create, and we have some protocols for depuration of these long-lived chemicals. And I mean, PCBs, 50-year half-life when you yeah. really do that. Excuse me, 50 yes. years to get the, not a half-life, but 50 years to get the get chemical it out. out of your body. So we, we must... Look at both avoidance, not getting in in the first place, which for BPA and uh, phthalates works pretty good. But for these long-lived chemicals, we have to look at phase three, right? This is all phase three detoxification pathways, getting them from the hepatocyte into the bile caniculi, you know, in in the liver and from the um, renal, through the renal tubular cells into the lumen of the kidneys. That's phase three. So protocols for
0: that. Yeah, go ahead. Well, just give me um, and folks, we will. You, this this is obviously a, a bigger conversation than our time is going to per, is permitting today. But you know, Dr. Patrick is going to give us some links to where you can further your education in this mm-hmm. arena. But in the meantime, um, I I I want to say two things. One is you know again lecturing in this arena um, specifically talking about fatty acids essential fatty acids you know omega-3s looking I came across uh Hennig's work at a University of K- Kentucky uh and Hennig has done some really cool animal studies where he looks at so if you when you when you drill down to the molecular level of what toxins um and toxicants are actually doing you end up seeing you know uh, increased oxidative stress, you know, d- disruption of molecules yes. and damage and so forth. Like the, the same kinds of things that we see when we look at the molecular level of any chronic disease, when you really drill down there, imbalanced mm-hmm. electrons, you know, free radical activity, et cetera, et cetera. And so what he's, what he's been doing over there at University of Kentucky is looking at the, you know, omega-3 influence on changing the, the impact of PCBs favorably and, you know, uh, phytochemicals. And just, just, so one of the things, the take home from this, the heartening kind of uplifting empowerment is, you know, take your essential fatty acids, eat your fruits and vegetables, you know, it, it clean sources, but transitioning over to a healthful diet is one piece of the detox protocol. So when I'm teaching and, you know, people often want, to know specifically what is a detox protocol well it's yes. do your foundational lifestyle interventions first and foremost
1: absolutely
0: you know and as we're taught as naturopathic physicians like people have you know the organs of elimination have to be open and running like pooping and sweating and mm-hmm. you know and all of this um, and I want you to comment on that but more importantly I also want to ask you about what your, um, so what are your interventions? Cause that's going to, that is a huge question. Like what would be some of the fundamental uh, nutrients that you might really turn the volume up on?
1: Yeah, Um, so this is a, I'm gonna really, really uh, abbreviate here. This is an (laughs) hour long lecture. (laughs) that I do. So, so please understand there's more to it than just this. Yeah. Certainly being able to utilize the organs of elimination and specifically the skin. So for many years I had an environmental medicine clinic. Um, Everyone who was, Capable of going into the sauna was given a prescription for medical sauna protocol, which is starting you know, we we saw lots and lots of um, Multiple chemical sensitivity very sick patients. So sometimes they can go in the sauna for five minutes Sometimes they can go in the sauna for up to an hour. So it was we had nurses who would monitor them pre and post Um, We did blood pressures, etc. And so for the majority of them they could do 15 to 20 minutes. So it's 15 to 20 minutes Uh, Five days a week times six weeks is one course. They have to shower afterwards. They have to use a lipid-based soap, and they have to wash their hair. Otherwise, What's a
0: lipid-based, like what would be a lipid-based? Oh, kiss
1: my face. face. Well, I don't like kiss my face. We got one from a small company in Vermont that made an olive oil-based liquid soap, and they went out of business. And so I haven't found a substitute, but uh, uh, a soap that's lipid-based that, you know, is a soap, that will help really get the, the uh, that oils off the skin. Yeah, so that's important. And then of course, transit time, normalizing transit time. So normalizing transit time is very different than asking people how many bowel movements they have a day. You actually test them for transit time and then you normalize it. And that, as you know, if you're a clinician, is a, is a project uh, because it involves looking at um, GI function. But uh, at least getting people on a good source of fiber. And really the fibers that tend to bind that have been published, especially for the persistent organic pollutants, are soluble fibers. Um, Propylmanin is a very good one. Cholestyramine in patients who can tolerate it and in physicians who like to prescribe it. Mm -hmm. Um, I do not like using clay internally because it's high in heavy metals. Charcoal seems to work much better for patients. Um, I know that um, one of the manufacturers of a clay charcoal product, I don't know if I can mention products. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, Biobotanical Research has GI detox. I know because I know the owner of that company very well, and she's spoken on your podcast. Rachel Fresco has actually had her clays assayed for metals. make sure that they are low in metals Um, but I just spoke with her in the last couple of months and they changed the raw material sourcing on her and because she's so um, persistent about this um, she is now looking for a new source of clay that is metal free so if you know and she's one of the few if not the only manufacturer I know that I can actually get a spec sheet from her and see that she's tested her clay so um, the only fiber from a plant uh, or excuse me from a grain that we know that works um, really for these persistent organic pollutants is rice bran fiber um, so they're you know rice bran fiber there's some research with oat bran fiber but I don't like oat bran because you know you can guarantee that it's gluten-free so I don't oh. use it
0: mm-hmm. rice
1: bran fiber Listen,
0: what decision. about like would you see arsenic in rice bran fiber? Would that be something that you would... There
1: is arsenic in rice bran fiber, and I have been asking manufacturers of rice bran fiber for spec sheets on rice bran. Yeah. Dr. Crinion and I have had this ongoing Animated conversation about this for years, and he's convinced me based <laughs> on the literature. Believe me, I was in his face about this. And he's well, are you
0: guys like, this is a late night bar? You know, whiskey conference. I'm just kidding. you're yeah. <laughs>
1: <10 years laughs> a Been a while for me. Whiskey, <laughs> since it's been 30 no, years. but I'm, um, I'm just teasing. But, but, but yes, we have gone through the literature. It appears that the benefits of rice bran fiber outweigh the risks. I can okay. say that from okay. okay. the literature and me yelling and about this with him. He's like, no, you don't get it. Benefits outweigh the risk. So he convinced me of that. So- That's
0: so fascinating. Well, you know, he also said maybe we don't remove amalgam either so that was uh
1: so i've also gone to the mat with him about that yeah Um, i think that i have proven that that is necessary based on some of the data okay study done by a gentleman named uh, clark uh that health canada funded where he found that the amount of amalgam in the mouth of an adult that would be correlated with in intraoral mercury that yeah. would surpass the California EPA allowable levels for occupational air mercury exposure is 0.8 surfaces of a tooth.
0: Huh.
1: Meaning, you know, there's four surfaces, four yeah. f- f- sides to a tooth,
0: yeah. so
1: that's a side of a tooth, which means one amalgam. And that's very that's very good data. He did this. He actually had a probe, gas chromatograph probe, and he put it in the mouths of about thousand people. And then he correlated it with their uh, urine mercuries and their blood mercuries. And then he looked at the level allowable levels for uh, California EPA, which is the best, you know, yeah. California EPA is the most progressive EPA in the country
0: right. better than
1: the feds. So right,
0: right.
1: Wow, that was an interesting segue, but, um, <laughs> we get there. but anyway, back, back to the, back to um, one more thing I want to say that's yeah. very, yeah. I'm gonna talk about the reviews on uh, sulforaphane and resveratrol. And there was an article that was just published in 2019 by three conventional researchers, one of them uh, is an OBGYN, talking about the necessity for beginning to intervene in patients who have metabolism disrupting chemicals on board, which is everybody. And they talk specifically about fiber as an intervention, they talk specifically about sulforaphane as an intervention, and they talk specifically about resveratrol as an intervention. This is a brand-new article in the standard conventional um, endocrinology literature, Frontiers in Endocrinology. It just came out this year.
0: What's and, the fiber yeah. that they were using?
1: Yeah. What's the what?
0: The fiber that they were using?
1: Um, they talk about a variety of different sources fibers. Oh, they do? Okay. So they okay. would include... Uh, purple man and in that research this is all published research and I think what is I'm going to be talking about this at EHS because it's so revolutionary what they're saying now is we have passed the point of using the argument that it doesn't you know this resveratrol has not been proven in double blind placebo controlled randomized yeah. trials and patients right. who are PCB poisoned we're yeah. past that point yeah we're way past that point we have to start intervening with these phytochemicals These dietary interventions now. And so I was really heartened to see this article. It's a huge review article, and they actually not only specify some brand new websites. I'll give you this article.
0: Yes, I do. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: they, they not only specify new websites that are created by like the Collaborative for Health and the Environment, very progressive groups, to talk about intervention and avoidance for clinicians to educate all their patients, especially their preconception care patients. But they talk about using phytochemicals like resveratrol and sulforaphane now because they, like omega-3s, they actually minimize the uh, cellular DNA damage. Yep. And the endocrine disrupting capacity of these chemicals. And I think the reason I can swim around, as we were talking about before we started recording this morning, swim around in this world of how toxic everything is, is that I spend a lot of time doing laps in the solution pool. And right, so right. Right. I swim around in the solutions all day long. And there yes. are so many effective solutions that are cost effective. Yes. So we're not asking everybody to get a hyperbaric chamber in for their bedroom.
0: All right, that's right. Yeah, and they're, you know, and they're just they're they're natural extensions of a healthy lifestyle, like eating good, clean exactly. fish or taking extra omega threes. Teaching or, you your know.
1: patients how to grow broccoli sprouts. Right,
0: that's right. I
1: will tell you that I have been extremely successful in patients who you would never imagine would even be interested or willing to grow broccoli sprouts. That it's now a daily part of their diet as they put them in their smoothies.
0: Well, listen, if you just- have a- yeah <laughs> if you have a handout we want I want that as well I, three day
1: well you know the uh, Johns Hopkins research is the third day is the highest uh, level of sulforaphanes. Um, but you have to actually get them out of the seed so it's not like from the third day of soaking the seed it's the third day of the actual sprout growth and so yeah I think I have a handout on that <laughs> Just, I'm actually you. kind of
0: teasing you, but if you honestly do, that'd be awesome. No, be it's great. and
1: this is the world we live in, right? Is yeah. we have to learn how to use I mean, diet as medicine. It is crucial.
0: Yeah, well, and 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 it's just really heartening for me. It's I'm with you in needing to swim around in the solution pond because it's it's very heartening that it actually that we can do this. And you know, and I, I you know, as clinicians, we're you know we're thinking detox. It means you know. Supplements and interventions and protocols, X, Y, and Z. And it's different from, you know, and that bucket is different from the diet, which is different from the lifestyle bucket. When in fact, you know, as soon as somebody walks through our door and starts to tell us their history and we begin to, you know, think about moving them out of, you know, the sympathetic overdrive, et cetera, like all of our very foundational interventions are mm-hmm. detox you know, they're, they are influencing the journey, so.
1: Improving phase one, two, and three, yep. well, let
0: let me just ask you, um, we're, we're wrapping up here, sadly, but we, <laughs> you and I talked about metals, I know, I, I we could keep, there's a lot of stuff we need to talk about, and we talked about metals, and I want you, and, and folks, you can continue your your education with Dr. Patrick, she's teaching all over the place. Um, But I give me, just give me the thumbnail. So we, we were Mm -hmm. once upon a time we were doing, um, you know, provocate, We're getting baseline metals. Actually, Dr. Crnian talked about this. Base, get your yes. baseline urine metal. Do your provocation. Get your follow up to assess body burden. That was like kind of standard. Our standard mo. And, and that is
1: the way I was trained as well, and I practiced for um, at least um, I would say almost a couple of decades until.
0: Yeah, go ahead. Give me give me the overview, we, and then we'll. launch yeah,
1: Until the year two thousand and twelve. In two thousand twelve, okay. I was teaching. For ACAM, you know, ACAM's the uh, MD, NDDO organization that teaches chelation, or at least historically did. Uh, in 2012, the American Board of Medical Toxicology, which are the toxicologists and the American uh, Board of State, State Medical Boards, I'm sorry, I don't know the acronym, had a conference in which they talked about uh, heavy metal detox and provocation. And basically, the toxicologist said there's no science behind it which is kind of funny because there is, it's how we yeah. used to test all children for yes. lead using EDTA, product, yes. up right. until a very recent time, they apparently forgot their history. But what they right. said basically is um, it, it is not standard practice and anyone who does this should be reported to their medical board. At, at which point um, the lawyers at ACAM and the doctors sat down and had a long discussion about how we needed to revisit the process of testing and treating um, for metal toxic, toxicity. So what we did is we spent, uh, you know, the, la- the next five years diving deeply into the medical literature. And Dr. Crinion and I have both talked about this and changed the way we teach. So what we know now is that, and I'm going to be very specific for very specific metals, so pick up a pen if you're listening, for lead and for mercury, you must test for whole blood because the majority of mercury burden is in the blood and the majority of mercury burden is from dietary exposure in most patients, not in everybody. For lead, whole blood lead is the standard of care. If you are treating someone for lead toxicity, you must, and I really use that word for a reason, have a whole blood lead in the chart to protect yourself and because it's standard of care. But more importantly, you can use that blood lead to make decisions about treatment. So we say safe levels of lead, right? This is the standard uh, of care from the American Academy of Pediatrics and the CDC. Um, that any adult who has a blood lead of ten and under, that's safe. Pediatrics, anybody, any kid who has a blood lead of five and under, that's safe. Uh, neither of those things are true. All right. The uh, Tender Consensus to EMDR, you can look it up, which is a group of pediatric uh, public health advocates has published in Environmental Health Perspectives. They say that it is it, that, that the standards need to be changed. The safe level is one and under. And many labs don't even have, have that as their lower limit of detection. Yeah,
0: they don't. Mm-mm. In
1: adults, it is two and under. And there's uh, Bruce Lamphere just published in Lancet Public Health last year using the NHANES database to substantiate risk for cardiovascular disease in this country. There are probably about half a million people each year that die of cardiovascular disease with an underlying lead burden that promotes that cardiovascular event. And so um, if you do not, and we did this in our clinic, we just started testing whole blood leads on all adults who had either cardiovascular uh, uh, history or who were uh, over the age of 50 and i think we were probably way too conservative we should be testing much lower because anybody born after 1980 has a uh, body burden of lead that puts them at risk for disease so you know we really should have used that so anyway that's how we teach now at acam you know and and for cadmium and arsenic the other two big metals um, arsenic and cadmium spot urine not provocation
0: urine. Oh, interesting. Spot
1: urine. We use the epidemiological literature. Like any
0: time? I mean, would you recommend doing it in morning? I mean, Doesn't matter. Uh, If
1: you look at, yeah, you know, random urine. We call it a random urine. And I think, yes, of course we want to get the first morning urine. But in a situation where you're looking at an acute exposure or for cadmium, because of the toxicology of cadmium in the renal tubular cells, a Non-provoked random urine, cadmium, it's gonna be the same no matter when you do it.
0: So, okay.
1: yeah, and so there's, okay. there's tons of epidemiologic uh, literature that underscores and substantiates the use of these tests as more indicative of a body burden or for uh, arsenic. We don't store arsenic you know, in our organs. Very short half-life. Um, acute exposure is where you're gonna really see the problem with arsenic from water contamination. Um, okay,
0: that's the big.
1: So the yeah, big and so that that's the abbreviated, real cliff notes of what's probably a good two-hour lecture.
0: Yeah, right, right. Um, al- along with what to do about it, which is an- an- another conversation. Correct. Um, all right. So where are you speaking next? If people really want to get on this. <sighs>
1: um, so in Ramehale Symposium, which is coming up next month, in Scottsdale.
0: In Scottsdale. Uh,
1: yeah, okay. April 12th through the 14th, um, okay. the environmental Health Symposium. And I'm going to be talking about endocrine disruption and in, in very specific interventions for endocrine disruptors. Okay. We're not going to be talking about metals at this EHS, um, but there's a ton of information. Um, you know, we did a bunch of lectures on metals. Um, for the NAEM you know the, Nas- the Naturopathic Academy of Environmental Medicine that just is now the National Association of Environmental Medicine so I'll send you the links to that yeah
0: yep. Uh, okay. and
1: for members all that stuff is free there's hundreds of hours of all the webinars we've been doing for the last five years that are on the website that are free
0: all right fabulous um so to be continued either here on our podcast or your education as clinicians, Yeah, uh, we've got lots of directions for you to go in with Dr. Patrick and the really amazing team over there, including Dr. Kurnia and also a teacher of mine. Um, okay. Well, Lynn, it was just really wonderful to get to spend this time with you today. I just, It's just been fabulous having you on New Frontiers. And thank you for your hard, hard, committed work. I and- so appreciate it.
1: You're so welcome. And thank you so much for doing your great podcast. I listen to them all the time. They're good. Oh, They you, you really give us the information that we need as clinicians, and, and
0: uh, I really appreciate that. Uh, thanks so much. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. And that wraps up another amazing conversation with a great mind in functional medicine. I am so glad that you could join me. None of this would be possible through the years without our generous, wonderful sponsors, including Integrative Therapeutics, Metagenics, and Biotics. These are companies that I trust and I use with my patients every single day. Visit them at integrativepro.com, bioticsresearch.com, and metagenics.com. Please tell them that I sent you and thank them for making New Frontiers in Functional Medicine possible. And one more thing, leave a review and a thumbs up on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you're hearing my voice. Um, These kind of comments will promote New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, getting the word on functional medicine out there to the greater community. And for that, I thank you. Until next time.